God is a trucker. Hear me out. Last year, I went to a songwriting retreat with an organization called Porter's Gate. You all know Porter's Gate from songs like Brother Son, which we introduced a few weeks ago. We will make no peace with oppression. All your ways are peace, so on and so forth. I actually worked for the guy who founded Porter's Gate uh, in Virginia the year before I moved to New Jersey. So the purpose of this retreat was to write worship songs for workers. And we broke off into songwriting groups, and our task was to think about what other vocations and jobs that we can metaphorically envision God in. So I thought about Psalm 23 and how God is a shepherd in that poem. And we thought, okay, what, what other analogs would that be today? So we thought about God as a trucker. We chose this because it's almost the exact analog of the ancient Near Eastern shepherd, someone whose work is fundamental to the operation of society, yet someone who is looked down upon and often overlooked. Someone who works in often awful conditions and awful compensation. The work is dirty and tiring. Sometimes people say to them, if you wanted a better job, you should have pursued a different career. So we thought about all of this and we came together to write lines such as, the Lord is my deliverer. You get me where I need to be, responding to my every need right on time. From open roads to crowded streets, you find a way to navigate the heart in each and every state, day and night. The Lord is our distributor, embodied in our every move, to bring your kingdom into view here and now. In every corner of the earth, abundantly you will supply. There's nowhere that you wouldn't drive our lifeline. Now, I haven't gotten any royalty checks for this song yet, so I don't think it made it onto a Porter's Gate record, unfortunately. It must have been a little too funky for them. They weren't ready for it. But one of the many good things that did come, up, come out of it was a new way to think of God as a worker, which now I'm reading back into Psalm 23 and other scripture texts as well. So throughout Lent, we're looking at how Jesus would have incorporated these psalms into his life. And when I thought about when Jesus would have gone to Psalm 23, I immediately thought of his claim in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. So I can't imagine that he didn't have Psalm 23 in his mind when he said this. Jesus regularly receives the colonized, the exploited, the exhausted people of Judea and Galilee and has them literally lie down in green pastures. He has them lie down by still waters so that they can enjoy a respite from a life of endless toil a life of endless production, production which is stolen from them to support the Roman armies who are occupying them. He sets a table before them. Sometimes he does this literally by feeding them fish and chips with Cheddar Bay biscuits. Sometimes he does this figuratively by feeding them with a truth that gives them a vision of how to make the empire obsolete and how to usher in a society of abundance and peace. He revives their souls. He heals. He forgives sins. He preaches life-changing sermons that get people fired up to the point where they change their entire lives to follow him and join the movement. He leads people along right pathways. He rolls up on the disciples when they're in their fishing boats, and he says, follow me, 
And with those two words alone, they leave their lives and they follow him into a new life. He shows the people how to live in a way that gives them personal and collective peace. He leads them to Samaria to turn outcast women into apostles who preach against the Hebrew-on-Hebrew racism that only serves to turn the oppressed against each other rather than against oppression. He said, the time is coming when it won't be Samaritans versus Judeans, this mountain versus that mountain, this tradition versus that tradition. It'll be about spirit and truth. He leads them to Galilee to show them that the movement doesn't begin in Jerusalem. The movement doesn't stem from the center of worldly power. The movement doesn't pivot around the ruling class who rule on behalf of Rome. The Messiah can't come from Galilee, can he? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The movement starts with the people who are doing what they can to make the state obsolete even while they are under its auspices. Those are the Galileans. And it's to these Galileans that Jesus first makes his radical claims. Y'all see that monument over there that Rome built after they decimated our villages and enslaved us? Most of y'all already know that the inscription on there is a lie. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Caesar is the hope of ages past. Caesar has put an end to war and ushered in the final era of peace. Caesar is the evangelion, the good news. No. We're reclaiming the messianic language and the eschatological symbols that they appropriated from us. I am the Messiah. I know y'all have seen messiahs and messianic uprisings come and go, but I've demonstrated to you all that now it really is the time. And the way that you know is, yes, the healings and the exorcisms and the signs and the teachings. But even more than all of that, it's the movement. It's a movement whose integrity is proven by the fact that it operates on principles beyond those of the powers and principalities of this world. It's a movement that operates on freedom and creativity and cooperation, on love. I am love. And it's precisely in being love that I am Lord. I, not Caesar, not any of the so-called messiahs that came before me, I am Lord. Because all of them sought and seek to dominate and to coerce and to rule. But I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to love. It is precisely in being love that I am the Alpha and the Omega. It is precisely in being love that I am the ones of whom the prophet spoke. I am the one who crushes the head of the serpent. I am the one who turns swords into plowshares. I am the lamb who pacifies and lies down with the wolf. I am the good news. I am the gospel. I am love. I'm not the bread in the circuses. I'm the bread of life and joy unspeakable. I'm not the Pax Romana. I'm not the absence of revolt. I'm the presence of God. I'm not the emperor who homogenizes the cultures of his subjects. I'm the son of the God who magnifies the uniqueness of God's children, my siblings. I am. I am that I am. Before Moses was, I am. Before Caesar was, I am. Before empire was, I am. Before the world was, I am. Before everything, God is. Love All of this evil that we see, love is before it, and love will remain after it. 
Love is its repudiation, and love is its deconstruction, and love is the reconstruction of the world that I created and have come to this earth to recreate. So let's go. We do this together. We are the people. We are the beloved community. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone is capable. Everyone is needed. Everyone is a leader. Everyone is good, and I am the good shepherd. This good shepherd leads people along right pathways, even into the belly of the beast. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. He walks through the literal valley of the shadow of death. And yet, he fears no evil, for God is with him. And he tells his disciples, he tells us to do the same. He sets a table for his disciples in the presence of their enemies. He takes off his tunic. He washes the mule excrement off of their feet. He prepares for them a simple but elegant meal. He gives them his love. He gives them his body and his blood. And their enemy is right there watching. Judas is there. The powers of self-interest and violence and death that he represents are there. And as soon as Judas takes the bread from Jesus, what does the Bible say? Satan enters into him. He has literally become the embodiment of the powers and principalities. But it doesn't matter because Jesus is greater. Death might be present, but what matters more is that Jesus has anointed their heads with oil. What matters more is that Jesus has chosen them and set them apart for a purpose. What matters more is that Jesus has healed them and set them free to rise above. Deprivation and loss and theft might be present, but Jesus has made their cups overflow. They might be on their way to torture, to humiliation, and to death, but goodness and mercy will follow them all the days of their life. They might be on their way to alienation and abandonment, but Jesus is preparing a place for them and will bring them there to be with him. Their bodies might be taken out of the city to be crucified and left as food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, but somehow, some way, they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is their shepherd. They shall not want. The state and its puppets have made the people into sheep and abused them. But Jesus is here to comfort and empower them. He's here to revive our souls. He's here to set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He's here to anoint us. He's here to fill our cup to overflow and to rear guard us with goodness and mercy. He's here to transform our vulnerability from the site of our exploitation into the site of our fulfillment. At the very point that you would seek to exhaust me, God sustains me. At the very point that you would seek to starve me, God feeds me. At the very point that you would cast me out, God invites me in. At the very point that you would have me believe in scarcity, God shows me abundance. At the very point that you would have me be all alone, God extends their friendship to me. At the very point that you would reject me, God chooses me. At the very point that you would call me worthless, God anoints me. And I know that Jesus has told me to love the very enemy who would and does do these things to me. But I know this is possible because our struggle is ultimately not 
against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I know that my struggle is not against my enemies, but rather against enmity itself. My struggle is not against my own subjugation, but rather all subjugation. Our struggle is not against our own death, but against all death. And I know that in this battle, I have the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shield of faith and the shoes of peace and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I don't need to adopt the logic of the state in order to defeat the violence and the domination that it embodies. In fact, I cannot resort to violence in order to defeat violence any more than fire can put out fire. Instead, we have the salvation from God which liberates our mind from the deceptive allure of self-interest. We have the righteousness of God which liberates our hearts from the consuming ethic of accumulation. We have the truth of God which holds us together against the logic of the state which retroactively justifies its own falsehood with allegedly self-evident axioms like total depravity and original sin. I have the faith in Christ which allows me to carry my cross and to be willing to lose my life rather than cooperate with empire. Knowing that there is more than this, that there is life after death. We have the peace that surpasses all understanding and it is itself the evidence of a new and better world which is already coming. We have the word of God which is sharper than any physical double-edged sword. The word of God which divides our true humanity from our distorted dehumanization. It judges the attitudes of the heart. It exposes the falsehood of who we have become and shows us what we can be. God's rod and staff, God's armor, the tools of God's trade as shepherd and as liberator. God's tools comfort us. And it's because God is our shepherd. It's because God is our liberator that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. The exploited and even the exploiter. Because God liberates everyone. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd. For this reason... The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. Because of our good shepherd, we will all dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is how Jesus can say, Psalm 23, right after he says Psalm 22. This is how we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right before or right after we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can express the anguish of our heart and we can reclaim promises that perhaps are not subjectively true in that moment, but are objectively true and can help give shape to our subjective truth in that moment. Because we know that the Psalms are occasional. 
They are expressions of sentiment specific to a certain time and place in our lives. We know that the Psalms collectively give voice to sentiments that are often mutually exclusive. One of the wonderful and challenging things about singing psalms in church and other similar texts in worship is that we're using these expressions of very personal, very occasional sentiment in a very collective and programmatic, premeditated way. So at times, Psalm 22 is subjectively emotionally true for us, but at other times, it's not. And at times, Psalm 23 is spiritually accessible for us, and at other times, it's not. At times we feel like crap and we say, my sin is ever before me. I was brought forth in iniquity. Hide your face from my sins. At other times we're more in a Psalm 26 type of place and we say, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me and try me. I walk in faithfulness to you. I wash my hands in innocence. My foot stands on level ground. But when we feel Psalm 22... Psalm 23 is there for us as a resource. It might remind us that we have felt secure in God in the past. It might be a way for someone else to demonstrate their security in God at that moment and to share that spiritual energy with us. When we feel Psalm 23, Psalm 22 is there to remind us to share our spiritual energy with someone who doesn't feel God's presence right now. This is the beauty of gathered worship. This is the beauty of collective spiritual practice. We carry each other through the dissonance of reading Psalm 23 when we're in a Psalm 22 moment or chapter of life. We help each other access objective truths that are subjectively unavailable to us in the moment. We help each other turn bitter into bittersweet and doubt into questions and fear of the unknown into remembrance of what we do know. Just as the method of science is research and the method of metaphysics is logic, the method of spirituality is relationship. We make spiritual inquiries and we learn spiritual truths through relationships. Relationships with God. Relationships with each other. Relationships with ourselves. We literally make things spiritually true for one another through our spiritual friendships. In other words, we we don't walk alone. We grow in our experience and mastery of the breadth of spirituality by synthesizing our truths with those of others. I feel sad right now, but I'm at church and we're singing, oh, happy day. And through relationship with these people around me, I'm able to perceive the emotional truth of both happiness and sadness. When I'm in a place of trust in God, having a friend remind me of the emotional truth and weight of doubt can act as a plumb line, showing the depth of the trust that I'm currently experiencing. It can also act as a conduit from me to them, as a way for me to share the emotional truth of trust with those who are not currently experiencing it. We share spiritual energy. We share metaphysical truth with each other. So we share spiritual truth as well. We demonstrate and transmit emotional truth through relationships. So this is what Jesus and his friends did along their Lenten journey. 
to Jerusalem. And it's something that they could have done all the more. What if instead of falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter had sung Jesus to sleep with a lullaby of Psalm 23? What if during his sham trial, Jesus had recited Isaiah's poetry to himself? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I wouldn't be surprised if those words were ringing in his mind. What if while Jesus was carrying his cross, what if while Jesus was being tortured and humiliated, his friends had taken up the rallying cry of Jesus' cousin, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rome was confident that it had made its subjects into sheep. Jesus drew on the words of David, Isaiah, and John to subvert the image of the sheep into a symbol of nonviolence. And he subverted the image of the shepherd into a symbol of the working community who resists empire through direct nonviolent action. And he took the cross, the symbol, the very symbol of Rome's domination and humiliation of their enemies, and he subverted it into a symbol of the infinite atoning power of God's love. So let's also subvert the symbols of empire. Let's also tell Caesar who's really Lord. Let's also defeat the state through our love. Thanks be to God.